Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Hi, is this Oscar? Yes, this is Oscar. Hey there, Oscar. My name is Jason yes. Wheeler. Sure, give me about five seconds, uh, Jay. Just uh, five, five seconds for my headset on. Okay. Okay, Jay, I'm back with you. Uh, Jay Wheeler, right? It's Jason, but yeah, close enough. Jason. Uh, yeah, Jason, and I'm with Jason Wheeler, right? Yeah, and I'm with WFAA TV. We're the ABC television station in Dallas, and um, and we okay. also do a political podcast called Yolitics. It's like politics, but Yolitics since it's in Texas. Right. Um, and I bet you can guess why I'm calling. Yeah, I think I know. <laughs> can you talk to us about it? Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Yolitics. Jason Whiteley here along with Jason Wheeler. And uh, what have people called you in the past? Uh, They've called me a lot of things. So when they say Jay, uh, I should just not correct them at all and say, absolutely. That's perfect. I don't want to push my luck. Much worse than that. (laughs) I, I was moderating an event the other day, and, and my last name has been messed up ever since I was in preschool or kindergarten. It's you know it's, it's pronounced Whiteley, but people always say Whitley. And they were introing me to come up to the stage, and Jason Whitley from Channel Eight uh, here. Jason, uh, Mr. Whitley, come on up. Happened twice, twice recently. And you just but, went along. You know, with I'll it? answered anything. Absolutely. What are you, you going to say? You're not going to say anything in front of these guys. I, out. I, I can't mean, tell you how many. You know, no I can't tell you how many times people have asked me. And what's your name? And I say Jason Wheeler. And they need a spelling. And I say it's Wheeler, just like eighteen Wheeler. And they'll go so uh, W. And I'm like wheel. Do you know how to spell wheel? Uh, wheel with an E R. Like to buy a vowel. This is not complex. <laughs> I know. It's, mine's white with an L Y. But whatever. <laughs> um, hey, I'm impressed, man. You you've been working this week. Um, to put this podcast together. I had to because you weren't. Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess you were, you know, golf, tennis, beauty, sleep, whatever it yeah. was. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, I had to pull the weight for two. Well, what are you drinking today, man? Because I'm, I'm going uh, to toast. I should be after doing all that work, drinking something with a lot more calories than this. I don't know why I have this, but it's a an all natural Ruby Redbird from Shiner. Ninety five calories in this one. Ha- how is it every time you pull a beer out, you don't know how these beers show up? In I'm your telling fridge. you, you had an IPA, you had the milk stout and you never know where they come. I'm telling from. you, who, though, who? It, it happens. And I don't know where these beers come from in my fridge. I think that some of that is, you know, people come over sometimes and they bring something and they'll stick it in there. And, and I, you know, it sits there and, and then I end up drinking it for the podcast and, and staying, you know, fit and trim with 95 calories. Yeah, how's that little girly beer taste in there? <laughs> hey, you know what? Huh? I'm not too proud. It's good. It's got a good citrusy. You know, you know, I like the citrusy. <laughs> I'm having the, uh, I've never heard of this, but I like the name of it. I thought it was uh, apropos for today's podcast. Uh, I'm having the hissy bit. <laughs> That's great. Bitter Sister and from Bitter Sisters. Bitter Sisters. I like that. And Bitter Sisters are from, uh, this is brewed in Texas. It's... Um, up on Surveyor Boulevard in Addison, Texas, just north of Dallas. Huh. It's a 
Martzen Lager for Oktoberfest, which we're in the middle of. That right sounds now. like something I would like even better than what I have. I usually end up, you know, wanting the one that you're having. Although when we did a survey, people liked my beer choices better than yours. Remember? Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Surveys are flawed, <laughs> man. I can't trust them. Look at the margin of error every time. Let, let's get into to, uh, today's topic here because it is a hot it topic, is. and it's one people are. People are talking about nationwide and people are getting involved in nationwide. This is uh, SB8. It's the abortion law. And let's start and get you up to date kind of with what's going on most recently here, Jason. The, The law passed, as we all know, we've covered that. You've seen the headlines for that. And now, just about 10 days ago, you had a doctor named Alan Braid who is from the north uh, northwest side of San Antonio, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying he tested the law. He says that he actually provided abortion care to a patient of his in San Antonio. He wrote about this in the Washington Post, and he actually recorded his voice reading it. Here's what he said. For me, it is 1972 all over again. And that is why... On the morning of September 6th, I provided an abortion to a woman who, though still in her first trimester, was beyond the state's new limit. I acted because I had a duty of care to this patient as I do for all patients and because she has a fundamental right to receive this care. I fully understood that there could be legal consequences but I wanted to make sure that Texas didn't get away with its bid to prevent this blatantly unconstitutional law from being tested in court. That's Dr. Alan Braid there reading at the WashingtonPost.com. Mm-hmm. And legal consequences is what this podcast is all about, because there are two people, neither of them are Texan, who are actually challenging this law in Texas courts, in Bear County courts. Yeah, so we're seeing some of those legal consequences play out. One of these um, who has filed suit is from Illinois. The other is from Arkansas. And, you know, they're asking for different things in their lawsuits, but they both uh, have the, the same underlying feeling here that they would like to undermine SB8. They want to expose uh, something about this law that maybe makes this law uh, unable to be enforced. Uh, now, uh, I don't know that they're going to get their wish on that. we got an expert to talk a lot more about that here in just a bit. But we figured let's reach out to these folks. And that's who, you know, you heard there, uh, you know, when I reached out and gave the cold call uh, to Oscar Stilley. He's the first one uh, filing suit. He is in Arkansas. Uh, I figured that he would answer because we had his home phone number and he is on home confinement right now uh, after a conviction. Uh, he's a uh, disbarred attorney uh, in Arkansas. And so we reached out and, and just to kind of get his feelings about this law and why he decided to be the first to jump in. Really, uh, the big reason I filed on this thing is because I see a law passed by the Texas legislature that is designed to do an end run about uh, around judicial review. And I just don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right. So you disagree wholeheartedly with SB8 and the way that it is supposed to be enforced by lawsuits. Oh, absolutely. You don't need any skin in the game. Uh, if you're just hungry and you want some money, just run down there and get $10,000. And But you're asking, aren't you asking in your lawsuit for that $10,000? Jason, I absolutely am. And if there's 10, a $10,000 pot of gold at the end of this rainbow, I want it. 
Why shouldn't I get it? If somebody's going to get it, as I read the statute. But you are, but, but you're uh, against the law, but you don't mind profiting off of the law if you can. Certainly not. Now, I, I'm not, I'm not banking on this for the rent money, if you know what I mean. I can't find a single legal expert out there of any, any standing whatsoever that thinks it's a valid law. Even the proponents don't think it's a valid law. Now, do you consider yourself pro-choice or pro-life? What, what, what do you consider yourself? I consider myself pro-life, even though I don't, uh, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, a fetus is a property interest. So that's up to a woman and her husband and her doctor. So, and I know a lot of people would criticize me and say, you're not pro-life. I actually, I think I am pro-life. And, 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 and I feel like that every child brought into this world should have two competent parents and the best set of genes reasonably possible under the circumstances. I'm willing to spend my own time and money to see that happen. What do you hope comes out of your lawsuit? Ultimately, if you had your total wish here, what comes out of this? Let's, let's cut through this, uh, this, the, the, the ropes whereby that they have tried to uh, tie this up away from judicial review. And let's let the judge rule on it. That's what I'm trying to get. But wait a minute, Oscar, what if you get what you want there? You don't get the $10,000. That's fine. I'm not worried about it. I guess I just blew $295.29 in that case, didn't I? That's what it cost you to file? Yes, that's what it cost to file. How easy was this to file? Impressively easy. I'm pleased with the um, the uh, Texas District Court has a real nice system that let, lets you go on and file your, your pleading. That's great. I think it's wonderful. How long did that take you? Um. I, I started Monday morning, uh, probably a little bit after five, and I got it drafted. And I, the, the file stamp says eleven sixteen a.m. Is this something that somebody without legal training uh, could do fairly easily, in your estimation, or no? Uh, depends. You don't need very much legal training to do this because basically, the the requirements to plead out a good case are nearly nothing. You have to uh, say that you're a, a person. And that the defendant did an abortion after uh, a detectable heartbeat. That's all you got to say. Hmm. Um, you have, uh, and it was interesting in the filing, what did you call yourself? A disgraced and what? What was it? It was a disbarred and disgraced former attorney. Um, so here you are calling yourself a uh, disbarred and disgraced former attorney. You're in Arkansas. Um, you're on home confinement right now for a, a conviction. Is that right? That is correct. And um, you have been able to file a lawsuit in this uh, in, in in this state in Texas. And also, we've had uh, a former attorney or an attorney in um, uh, Illinois file a lawsuit. Um, a lot has been made about the fact that uh, so far the first two suits uh, in in you know relating to SB eight are coming from outside uh, the state and um, and again from someone who describes himself the way you do in this filing. Precisely. Precisely. I didn't draft this law. When I looked at this law, I thought, oh, my goodness, really? Is this the best you can do to draft a law? You're just going to let anybody come in here. Well, I guess that, that includes me. So how about I come in? It doesn't matter that I live in Cedarville, Arkansas. None of these things matter. It matters that I'm a person. That's what happens when you let your emotions take over and rule instead of your rational mind. Um, and... Uh... What do you think that, you know, a lot of people, you know, haven't really paid much mind to, to all of this. You know, they've just sort of let this you know play out in the legislature and now in the courts. Um, why should the average Joe care about any of this in, in your estimation? 
because it has to do with the way that our government operates. Are we going to have a government that actually operates on the basis of being open and honest and letting everybody have fair and reasonable access to the courts? Are we going to try to hide the ball here so that nobody can get to this law and actually get a ruling on it and decide whether it's valid or not? Hmm. That's why the citizens have an interest and should have an interest in this. That is uh, Oscar Stilley there from Arkansas uh, taking our call and giving us uh, sort of the background and the motivations as to what led him to be the first to to file one of these lawsuits uh, against this doctor in Texas for performing an abortion. And it's important that we hear from from this guy and from our next guest here as well in just a moment that you reached out to up in Chicago, because the coverage really hasn't included either of these voices, the national coverage on this. You've You've seen what Dr. Braid wrote in the Washington Post. You've heard all types of coverage from from, uh, uh, you know, the New York Times, from the different cable news channels, from from all the media outlets in Texas about, you know, whether the law will will work or not. But you you haven't heard from these guys who are testing the Texas law. And, you know, Mr. Stilley there was was straight up. He said, I want the ten thousand dollar pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. He's going to test the law to see. Uh, you know, whether it's valid or not. That's what's interesting to me. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people thought that that is what we were going to see after this law went into effect, that we were going to get this sort of gold rush come into Texas. Like, okay, let's all go after uh, abortion providers or anybody who helps with these abortions and just make as much money as we can. Uh, And I think that that's what most people thought was going to happen. Uh, but the next guest didn't want to do that. And, and just to, to, to point out uh, for our listeners who might not have gone through every page of this law, there is a clause in Section 178.208 that says if a claimant prevails, if mm-hmm. someone like Mr. Stillian in Cedarville, Arkansas, just north of Fort Smith, if he prevails, then statutory damages in the amount of not less than $10,000 for each abortion shall be paid. That's mm-hmm. a lot of money. And like you said, I'm surprised that there weren't more or we haven't seen more people so far actually going for the money. And so the second person filing suit here is not asking for the ten thousand dollars. He's just going straight after the law. And so we are jogging up to uh, Chicago, Illinois now. Uh, and we have uh, Felipe Gomez there who has also uh, taken our call on this. Uh, he is a uh, an attorney, former attorney. His law license was actually suspended, but he is fighting that now. Uh, and we uh, reached out to him, too, to find out, you know, w- what is it that made you sue Uh, someone way down in Texas under SB8. You filed a lawsuit, Felipe, that you're actually kind of hoping that the other side wins. Is that right? Yeah. You know, when you look at it that way, as far as is one of the few lawsuits I'd want to lose. So, Felipe, you consider yourself pro-choice. Correct. Did you ever dream that you would be filing a lawsuit against a provider uh, of an abortion? No, my mom's a doctor, so I wouldn't even dream of suing doctors, and I don't didn't practice that field. Yeah, so I'm pro doctor, and this is a pro doctor lawsuit. I mean, this doctor basically came out on the Washington Post in an op ed and said, "Hey, I did it," uh, and you know, we might have expected a bunch of attorneys to start filing actions here and lawsuits here. Why haven't we seen that in your estimation? A practicing attorney has an active oath to obey state law, and you also swear to obey federal law. So when he goes to sign a complaint under SB8, he's got to ask himself, does this violate Roe versus Wade? And even if it doesn't matter his political position, if he's honest with himself, he's got to say, yes, it does. So he can't sign it. 
And so I think the fact that when nobody's filed lawsuits shows that you got some good attorneys down there in Texas, in my opinion. So, Felipe, a lot has been made about uh, what, you know, some people call vigilante justice here, that basically the um, the mechanism for enforcing SB8 is to just have regular citizens sue um, people who helped with an abortion that has been outlawed uh, under this law. Uh, and, and a lot of people have said that this basically just creates a bounty hunter's paradise, that uh, a lot of people are going to jump in and sue someone they don't even know just so they can make, you know, $10,000, uh, which the law allows for. You're not asking for any money in your lawsuit. No, and typically a deck action doesn't ask for money. You just ask for an interpretation of a contract or a statute. Mm-hmm. So by definition, and in fact, when I filed the thing, there is a little box where you have to tell the court, are you asking for money or not? And I had to check non-monetary. What, what do you hope comes from your lawsuit? Well, it was obviously to get just exposed what SB8 is, which is an aspirational preamble, basically, that they tried to push into law because they were in a hurry. Uh, and as the gentleman from, uh, was it Right for Life, that's one of the proponents of this, said these weren't the lawsuits they were looking for. Well, he, he, my response when the road reporter asked me is, well, you wrote the law, basically. You should have put that in there. <laughs> yeah, so far you know, we've had two people from out of Texas suing a doctor in Texas. Right. And so normally the statute will have some kind of a jurisdictional parameters about who can sue and under what conditions. And what prerequisites and typically the party has to have some kind of an injury that he can relate to who he's suing that legislature has the right to make restrict who gets to file so i think it's an example and i think oscar did it too to show people like look what you can get Hmm. some yahoos from illinois and arkansas the word of you know preaching is the way to to do things like this and trying to convince people what to do and what not to do but punishment doesn't work. You know, the word is way stronger than the whip in, in, in the long run. And governance by consent is how it really works versus government by force. So that's the larger context of why uh, I, I did this here. But this case has a lot to do with the COVID. And I don't want somebody, you know, there's only one party that may be dumber than, the, the, than these guys to do something. That's my own party, the Democrats, who might try to do an SBA force us to get shots and mask up or else have our family members telling us in re- for a reward if we go outside without one. So you're worried about the precedent that this law sets. Correct. That's a great part of it. I'm worried about it getting into the wrong hands and having my own Democrats try something like this. That's what I mean, that it's 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 always interesting to get the perspective and the background as to why somebody's doing something, Jason, because it gives you um, their thought process and it opens up some some thought, you know, it opens up these these sort of different tangents here. And, you know, that's that is food for thought uh, that this could uh, take many forms, especially as you start going around to different legislatures around the country. If this worked in Texas for abortion, who's to say it won't work in a liberal state for something else like guns or, or, or anything else or vaccines like like he said here, too. So. You know, Mr. Uh, Gomez there, he, he he said, you have a couple of yahoos, <laughs> his words, not mine, but you have a couple of yahoos here. You have a couple of former attorneys uh, who have two lawsuits pending. Mr. Gomez is, is suing on, on the principle of this. Mr. Stilley is suing for the $10,000, as you just heard. Um, two guys out of state mm-hmm. testing this Texas law. 
We have on the line with us, though, an expert who's going to walk us through that. Before we get to him, though, let's take a quick short break. All right, we are back, and on the line with us now, Jason, is Josh Blackman. He is a professor of law at South Texas College of Law in Houston, and uh, he has, you know, been watching this like so many of us. Um, let's talk first of all. Just you know, there's been a lot of back and forth on this. Where do we stand now with the law, and where is this headed next, as far as you can tell, anyway? This case is being litigated now in two separate paths, maybe even three. Um, The first path was a challenge brought by Texas abortion clinics, and that was the case that the Supreme Court rejected um, uh, earlier this month. The second path is a lawsuit brought by the Department of Justice. That case is pending before a federal judge in Austin, and we may get a ruling on that maybe sometime in November. Um, The third path is individual cases, that is people, Mm -hmm. random people in Arkansas and in Illinois suing Texas abortion providers, or at least one of them, for providing abortion. So there is two and perhaps even three paths this case is moving along now. Let me ask you about these these out-of-state folks that we talked to just a moment ago on the podcast here. The, the, The law, this brand new abortion law, section 171208 of the law says that anyone can sue. Does it matter that these two people are out of state, that that, uh, Mr. Stilley is in Arkansas and Mr. Gomez is in Illinois? It makes no difference. Virtually every man, woman, and child, well, actually every man and woman of legal age in the United States bring a lawsuit. Hmm. I want to ask this. Uh, We all know that this is an odd way to enforce a law, to have citizens sue to enforce the law, but it has been certainly effective and it makes it really tricky, it seems like, for the courts to stop this from happening. Can you explain why that's so tricky for the courts to be able to handle this law or, for instance, to be able to stop this law from being applied? Usually the way litigation works is that the legislature enacts a law. Groups that are affected by the law bring a challenge before the, blows, uh, before the law goes into effect. At that point, a court says to the government, you cannot enforce this law. So with a single judgment, the court says to the government, you can't enforce this, right? The judgment runs against the government, and that's it. Um, the Texas law is different. The government plays no role in enforcing it. Every person, not just every Texan, every person basically in the United States can be a potential litigator. And it's impossible to issue a single judgment that says everyone in the United States, stop what you're doing, right? That doesn't exist, right? That's why any judgment against person A would not affect person B. Person B can still bring the lawsuit. Um, The United States is trying to get around this by suing the entire state of Texas, saying that even judges in Texas can't even hear the cases. That's basically the only way to do a kill shot, to just stop the entire law in its entirety. But absent a judgment against the entire state of Texas and everyone inside of it, this law sort of exists like a hydra from Greek mythology. You cut off one head and two heads grow in its place. Professor, why, why in the world did it take this long for someone to figure this out? I mean, we're a pretty smart group and this is a litigious society. I would think that someone would have come up with this a while back. Well, the credit, I think, largely goes to a law professor who is now a litigator named Jonathan Mitchell. He was actually my law professor in college, uh, law school many years ago. Mm-hmm. And for years, he's been discussing 
this fallacy that courts can just erase laws. No, no, no. What you need to do instead is simply have private enforcement. If you have private enforcement, a court can't just stop the law in its entirety. And he floated this idea in an article maybe four or five years ago, and it caught on. And he got the ear of people in the state legislature, and they drafted it. And this law, I think, was born out of frustration with many other Texas abortion laws being stopped for years and years on end. And now some other states are considering similar measures here. Are we entering an era of citizen enforcement? And what are the repercussions of that if we are? Um, Right. So the fear here, right, the fear here is that all states will just simply shift to private enforcement. The um, uh, the mechanism for achieving policy goals. And the purpose of that is to simply insulate and protect these rulings from appellate and judicial review. Um, California, for example, could try to regulate private gun ownership through um, private litigation. Uh, Massachusetts could make it possible to uh, uh, sue people for hate speech, which is not allowed under the First Amendment. Um, but I think what makes SB 8, the Texas law, so unique um, is that abortion case law is in flux. Um, the Supreme Court's not likely to reverse its gun precedents anytime soon. And the Supreme Court's not likely to reverse its free speech precedents anytime soon. But the abortion cases are very much in jeopardy. And I think that affects why this law is so potent. If clinics were certain the Supreme Court would uphold Roe v. Wade 9-0, then, you know, this would be a much easier decision for them, but they're not. And SB8 is unique. Mm. If the court does overrule Roe in the future, liability is imposed retroactively. That is, even if a court today says, okay, a Planned Parenthood, you're fine. Let's say in a year the court overrules Roe, people can sue them for $10,000 on end. Professor, it, it is in flux, obviously, mm. which is why we're all having this conversation. But considering it being in flux, why haven't conservatives just rallied around this since this is something they've tried to do ever since Roe v. Wade back in 72. We've seen leading conservative voices just remain silent on this. I would think that they'd be, you know, just cheering this law. Um, I think they're waiting to see if it works. Um, You know, we've now, what are we now, a month basically, but but about a month in. Um, Maybe next week a court in Austin decides this doesn't work. And then the Supreme Court says 9-0, this is insane. So I think they're going to wait and see. A lot also depends on what's happening in Mississippi. This term, the Supreme Court's considering a law for Mississippi that bans abortions around the 15-week mark before viability. Um, if the court upholds Mississippi law, then I think the Texas law is on much stronger footing. So there, there are a lot of pieces that are sort of moving at the same time uh, that, that may or may not sync up in the next eight months or so. While we're on the subject of the Supreme Court, let's talk about the beginning of all of this. There were some groups that uh, went to the Supreme Court before this law went into effect, asking them to keep it from going into effect, uh, but they allowed it to go ahead. You founded something called the Fantasy SCOTUS League, uh, which I found very interesting. Basically, it's where attorneys and law students and people who are just avid followers of the Supreme Court of the United States uh, weigh in on how they think the high court is going to rule on cases before it. It's a lot like fantasy football, but with the Supreme Court uh, in a way. Would you have guessed 
if you were playing in that league, uh, that the court would just sort of stand idly by and allow SB8 to go into effect. And, and you know, further from that, what do you think that they will eventually do with this well, law? Well, uh, the decision didn't surprise me. In fact, I thought it was the correct decision. Let's just remember what the case was. Courts don't have the power to stop laws. They can stop people, right? They can say, John Doe, you can't enforce this law. As the case arrived at the Supreme Court, there was only one party, a judge out in East Texas named uh, 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 Judge Jackson. That was it. Even if the court had issued a ruling against Judge Jackson, every other judge in the state of Texas could have heard these cases. There's no way Planned Parenthood could have gotten the relief they wanted. So there was really nothing for the court to do. The court can't simply erase the statute from the books. They can only say, you're before me, you can't enforce it. Um, so there's really nothing surprising there. Really, the only way that that this works, that that this law is stopped, is if the United States succeeds and basically issues a ruling against the entire state of Texas, every government official in the state from top to bottom, that could work. Um, I don't think it worked, but that that could, in theory, at least work. And, Professor, for people like us who are on mm-hmm. the outside of the legal circles, it, it is interesting what you just said there, that that courts, when they rule, do not. Uh, you know, delete or eliminate laws. They just stop the enforcement of laws. So laws are still on the books. They just can't be enforced. And I think that's an important point. L- let me get back to one one point I had earlier about uh, why conservatives haven't rallied around this law. I'm, I'm curious why after Dr. Alan Braid from San Antonio wrote that uh, op-ed in the Washington Post, why haven't more conservatives or any conservatives filed uh, a lawsuit against him? For testing the law, I mean, are, are they thinking that the that just the threat of legal action itself is enough uh, of a deterrent? Exactly. Um, this law operates as a threat, right? Once you bring a lawsuit, then a court can say, "Oh no, no, what they did was just fine." This law exists best in the void, where you don't know how what it means, and I think that's its effect. I've actually been surprised at how much discipline pro-life activists have exercised by not bringing lawsuits. You only have these uh, sort of uh, you know, outsider groups, this guy in Illinois and this guy in Arkansas, who, as best I can tell, are pro-choice. They don't even oppose abortion. So it's not even clear that they oppose the law. It's, it's, you know, they, may, they may have some difficulties. Usually in court, you have to be actually, you have to have adversity. They actually want the law to be struck down. So a court may throw them out just on those grounds alone. The doctor in this case, though, and and I found this interesting in his op-ed, he said, I did it. I did perform an abortion, but he was vague in that part about whether any fetal heartbeat was detected. He never really addressed that. Do you think that that might be why some people have stayed on the sidelines with this? Because it doesn't seem cut and dry. Well, I had the exact same reaction. He didn't say he detected fetal heartbeat. The New York Times published an article and interviewed a lawyer from the Center for Reproductive Rights. And the lawyer said there was cardiac activity. So basically, mm. his lawyer said there was. Maybe Braid isn't. Um, the, op, the op-ed in the Washington Post was very vague on that point. It didn't say. So maybe this is a case where there was a six-week pregnancy where there was not, they checked fetal heartbeat, but there wasn't any activity. And maybe they're playing fast and loose with the facts here. Professor, for the last 20 years, we've, we've heard uh, Texas Republicans say they want to get frivolous lawsuits out of courts. Uh, they passed tort reform several times over the years and, and, and updated that. But, but it seems to me that the abortion law, SB8 here, really would make it easy for frivolous lawsuits to go to court. I mean, the, the conservatives are, are, are bashing uh, Mr. Gomez and Mr. Stilley for, uh, for filing these lawsuits, even though it's federal court here, too. What do you think about that? Does, does this 
create the opportunity for frivolous lawsuits to fill up courts? Well, to be clear, Gomez and the other guy filed in state court, not federal court. Um, so they, it's actually even closer to your question. Yeah, I, I think for many years, conservatives have said we don't want to use the courts to achieve policy goals. And that's precisely what this law is doing. Um, I think this law sort of responds to courts being used by the left to stop abortion laws. So saying, aha, you have your courts, well, our courts. And it's sort of shifting how courts are being used to preserve or, or even sustain abortion. Does it matter that, that Mr. Gomez and Mr. Stilley filed in, uh, in Bear County uh, court? Uh, rather than, than federal court? Does, it, does that slow down the process of getting to the Supreme Court? Uh, probably. So just to take a step back, why state versus federal court? Um, you can always file a state claim in state court. That's the easy part. But to get to federal court, it's tricky. To get to federal court, you need to have either a federal question. There's no federal question here. This is a state law. Or you, you need what's called diversity of citizenship, where a citizen of one state sues a citizen of another state. And you must seek $75,000 in damages. Both Braid and um, Stilly, I'm sorry, uh, Gomez and Stilly could have gone to federal court, which would have made the case move much quicker. I don't know why they didn't. Um, these, I, I, won't, I won't say anything mean, but, but these people are, are not uh, uh, you know, professional litigators. They're sort of just doing this on their own. So maybe they didn't have the mm-hmm. best advice. Um, but they could have gone to federal court. That would be much smarter. Braid mm-hmm. may still remove the case to federal court, which I think is probably what he will do. Well, why do you think that? Why do you think he'll remove it? Cases move much quicker in federal court than in state court. And the federal judges in San Antonio are, are probably more favorable than the state judges in, in, in Texas, right? You, if, you, if you go through the Texas court system, you wind up with the Texas Supreme Court. And that's probably not where they want to go for, for, um, mm. the, uh, for, the, for the abortion clinics. Does this ultimately undermine the courts? Uh, I mean, we've seen in, in this country sort of an erosion of, of faith in, in judges and in courts, people talking about, you know, partisanship and so forth. But really, is it's an effect of a breakdown between executive branches and legislative branches where nothing can get done and everything always gets punted out to the courts. Does this undermine courts to have this kind of an issue decided um, again in, in the courts instead of it being done by policy? Well, I mean, let me let me take a step back. Roe v. Wade was decided in the courts also, right? The mm-hmm. reason why we're here is because Roe took the abortion issue out of the political process 50 years ago. And if we didn't have Roe, we wouldn't have SB8, right? So, it, you know, it's like, it, who, who was the first to strike? Um, just this past weekend, the country of San Marino, which you've never, never heard of, it's a small country near Italy, very conservative country, legalized abortion through a democratic referendum. The people voted almost 75% mm-hmm. to legalize first-term abortions. Right. So when we're saying taking issues out of the political process, you know, which level are we at? I think if the people who enacted SB8 had their druthers, then to say if Texas would restrict abortion and then we wouldn't need to have these sort of bizarre private enforcement mechanisms. Professor, what's going to happen with, the, with this, this law? What, what do you think is going to happen at the, at the end of the day? I don't know. I, I, if the court follows traditional law and how laws usually been enforced, there's no way to stop it. Um, but the court may try to make something up and give DOJ some relief. Um, but the bigger question, again, is Mississippi. If the court upholds Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, then Texas will have a 15-week abortion ban. So a lot of it, SBA is almost like a sideshow, right? Mm. It really depends what happens with the Mississippi case. And that's a good point mm-hmm. because the, the way that the state lawmakers uh, wrote, wrote these bills is that whatever the Supreme Court enacts, then yep. that's what the state law becomes. Yep. Um, so they, they save themselves some time with that. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I mean... 
whatever the Supreme Court permits, Texas will do. So if it's six weeks versus 15 weeks, okay, then they'll do 15 weeks or 12 weeks, whatever, whatever, whatever's allowed. And um, I think other states will try these sort of private enforcement mechanisms as well in the interim. Well, we may have to call you back uh, down the road here. Uh, Professor Josh Blackman uh, with the South Texas College of Law in Houston. Uh, thanks for taking the time with us and explaining this out. Thank you so much, guys. Have a good day. So so that's an interesting takeaway, uh, Jason, that, you know, as much as we've heard said about SB8 here in Texas, uh, as the professor there says, this is just the sideshow to what's happening with Mississippi. And that one is going to the Supreme Court. When's the last time? With all due respect to our friends from Mississippi, when, when is the last time that anything in Mississippi has impacted Texas? Yeah, it's, it looks I like mean, this one's this one's going to impact everybody. Th- this this one really could. And and j- just to reiterate uh, what I mentioned and what uh, Professor uh, Blackman said too, th- the way that the Republicans in the Texas legislature have written laws over the years, even most recently, is that whatever the Supreme Court decides will automatically become law in Texas. Mm -hmm. So if the Supreme Court decides that uh, 15 weeks is the limit uh, that abortions are allowed uh, in the Mississippi case, then that will automatically become law in Texas. They don't have to wait for another session to go back in and debate this and come up with this. That is what's going to happen in this state. What what will be interesting to see, Jason, is if this is if this is ruled on next month, is what this new conservative majority Supreme Court actually decides. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I think we're all going to be also closely watching what's happening with the Department of Justice and its lawsuit against Texas uh, over this lawsuit law. Um, yeah. and, and I'm telling you, it's, it's real curious to see, as the professor says there, are they going to find a way to make it to where the Department of Justice can kind of get some legal remedy here. Otherwise, we probably will see this popping up in other states as a form, as a mechanism of enforcement where you just basically have citizen enforcement of laws. Yeah, if this happens, I I mean, that's why you haven't seen conservatives like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, come out and praise this thing. You haven't seen Donald Trump come out and praise this this Texas law. It has gone over, like uh, one journalist said, like a a lead balloon. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is surprising to me because, you know, how long have you been in journalism, Jason? Like 40 something years? Yeah, um, easily. It feels that way some days. <laughs> but, but this, you know, Republicans have been trying since 1972 to over to, to overturn Roe versus Wade and they haven't been successful. And for the first time since I can remember, you have a law that has actually stopped abortions in this state, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. And there there is no celebration around that. That's fascinating. Because- because precedents are yeah. funny things. Uh, they create some slippery slopes. And it this all just falls into that adage of be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. You know, you've found this way. You've shown this roadmap to be able to craft a law that is almost untouchable by courts and can't really be stopped because of the way it's enforced. And guess what? Uh, yeah, your allies and people who think like you and who align with you politically in other states, they're going to you know, try the same things. But guess what? Your opponents are going to start looking at the same thing and go, well, thank you for that roadmap. Now we know how to outlaw everything that is important to you, too. And we can just do battle in the courts and 
you can't stop us either. Mm. So it, it we're on that slippery slope and we might be sliding a little bit here. And, and, and that's not you know taking any position at all. That's talking just specifically about the enforcement mechanism and how it applies to so many different kinds of issues here in society right now. Yeah, it, it really does. Before we let you go, quick reminder that we have a, uh, a hotline. You can call us. Uh, the phone number is area code 214 uh, We tried to get 214 Wheeler, but it just didn't work. We didn't have enough digits on that one, so we had to settle for 977 <laughs> Give us a it shout. It depends on how you spell Wheeler. You know, if yeah. you, you know, shorten it and spell it incorrectly <laughs> like most people do, then you could probably fit that in. Too many digits there. Give us a call. <laughs> L- let us know what you'd like to hear. Let us know what you think about our latest podcast. Just reach out, holler at us, favorite beer. We, we got to find something better for Wheeler to drink besides these 95 calorie uh, Ruby Reds. Uh, you know, I'm a big Shiner fan, but Ruby Red, I mean, come on. Don't hate because I'm staying fit and trim over here. <laughs> that does it for this uh, episode of Yolitics. Thanks so much for listening. We're back again next week. Hope to uh, see you then. <laughs>